Special Blade from K-Rock and MV3. And I'm real happy to bring on this band. They just come back from a national tour of the States, which just about sold out everywhere. This is their first official performance in Southern California for several months. And they are jazzed to see her. They recently signed with Geffen Records. They have an album called Pleasure Victim. You probably know Metro and Sex. There's six members in the band. One is going to be coming on in just a little while. But right now we've got John, David, Rod, and all the rest of the guys. Matt, Rick, they're going to be rocking you. I think you know them. Please put your hands together and welcome I don't know if you know Orange County in, in California, but it's one of the places where people go to be the same. You know what I was going to ask you? If I could take your picture. Is that okay? It's going to be a Polaroid, so maybe I'll take two and I'll give one to you and keep one for myself. You got a smile. They'll follow us. They let us go. They're going to follow us. They'll destroy your hidden bases. Yeah. They'll destroy the whole system. Right. I know they'll follow. And they'll bring the Death Star, too. But our only hope is to destroy it before it destroys us. Right? Yeah, it, it was real piss. Uh, <laughs> it was real piss. All right, welcome to episode nine of CFX. No more words and what are they for or some variation of, of that title we will uh, work on here. But uh, I'm Jeff and that's Slip. And Hello, hello. Hello, hello, everybody. And welcome to the Cultural Futures Exchange, CFX for short. Uh, here's the place where we examine different elements of cultural ephemera, be it music, movies, TV. That was a that was a movie, I think, wasn't it? Or I don't know what that was. No, that was that was a stage kind of the stage show Frank Zappa did in the okay. '80s called Thing Fish, and that was um, the the female role talking about the, them pissing on us was Dale Bozio, and her husband Terry Bozio plays the male part, and. That's part of their history, so that's why we included right. included that. So it's right? stage too. It's not just mu music, movies, TV. It's stage. Uh, right. The context of the time that they came out, what's happened since, and then our take on the uh, future valuation, whether we're long, invest in it, short, you should sell it, or, or neutral in a kind of uh, pretend stock market uh, kind of way, right? Uh, based on. Uh, what we talked about in the first episode around the valuations of people, you know, the music mogul guy buying the catalog rights of famous rock stars and so forth. So this seems like a weird concept. It's hanging there. You'll you'll see it's not very complicated and it's it's all for good and fun. And so 
This is going to be a weird show. Uh, this is going to be about Berlin, the band, and missing persons. And Slip, why don't you explain why this is a weird show for us here? It's weird because normally, well, first of all, it's our first show that we've done that features any female artist. So we're not doing Joni Mitchell or Aretha Franklin. We're going straight for the ones that matter, uh, missing persons in Berlin. <laughs> um, no, what? so we got to talk about this a little bit because this is a different than any show we've done before. And it kind of came about because of a chat we had. So, you know, uh, Jeff is constantly kind of throwing out, what should we do next? And he just said, well, how about pleasure victim? And I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> pleasure victim? Yeah. Like, I didn't even know you were... You know, I knew you would know what that was, but I didn't even know that was on your radar. So what the fuck uh, compelled you to want to do Pleasure Victim? I like in Berlin the first place? and I knew yeah. that was the first EP or whatever it is. And I and I yeah. I thought it would be I wanted to do some new wave stuff like we've been yeah, kind yeah. of dancing around. We talked about uh, we're, we're right on the precipice of this era. You know, obviously, the last episode we talked about Cheap Trick and going into the 80s and we talked about Billy Joel uh, a couple episodes ago, and this was right on the precipice of this new wave time. And and I just thought, you know, what better new wave band to start with? Um, there's some maybe some better ones, but the one I wanted to start with was Berlin. And Pleasure Victim was one of the first um, albums that I ever heard by them. And I remember it and just thought it would be interesting. Right. And we also mentioned Missing Persons in the Glass Houses episode because I was making fun. I was using Dale Bozio's super exaggerated new wave singing to make fun of Billy Joel's super exaggerated new wave sitting the uh, singing and uh and and you also made a comment you know where we were kind of talking about pleasure victim and you're all well at least they're better than missing persons yeah. and I was like no way you know I lo I love missing persons no yeah. way they're great and so that kind of got us into this argument and then we kind of like were looking up stuff and we found, you know, obviously Jeff highlighted something in the Wikipedia. It's like, wait, whoa, you know, Dale Bozio posing for Hustler. And then I was looking around and I, I looking for Terry Nunn and boom, I found these nude pictures in Penthouse. And I'm like, holy shit, wait, they both did this. That's crazy. You know, what the hell? So, and then, um, you know, we just started looking into it and we started noticing all these weird parallels, right? I mean, they're different, very different sounding bands, but they're of the same time, you know, and we'll talk about the, you know, the zeitgeist and stuff like that, um, you know, and how they started in, in this, there's, but there's just so many parallels. That's the thing that was just crazy to me. Well, you, like, well, you, uh, you know, they did find the pictures you find, to be clear, were the cover. You didn't actually find the pictures because she was 15 at the time. I think they're probably not around, right? Right, right. Yeah, yeah you you can't look at those, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah it was just so. the cover. Um, <laughs> but uh but yeah, basically, um, you know, even though Missing Persons is kind of more of a guitar driven band, um, you know, and they came from they basically were birthed out of uh, out of people who had played with Frank Zappa, like every single member of the band had either been part of Frank Zappa's main band or had just guested on some of his material. Um, and then Berlin came out of this kind of scene in Orange County. Uh, that was kind of a, a really small uh, Fullerton scene where they were they were uh, recording out of this studio called Casbah recording. And they were and there was a lot of, um, you know, synth pop going on that was influenced by European synth pop. Right. So I think I, I think what we're going to do is, um, you know, it's it, normally the way our our show works. Right. Is we we kind of introduce the concept and we go into the zeitgeist, like what was going on at the time that might have influenced these bands and what kind of a scene they were part of. Um, and they were going, uh, and then we go into the history, uh, of, of 
the band and the album that we're talking about. Um, and, and then we go into the evaluations, but what's going to be a little different is we're going to have to do these in tandem sort of. So we're going to kind of, kind of be a little more back and forth between the two bands and kind of talk about it in that context. Um, it'll work just fine. Right. Yeah. It's, it's just a little different, but I think it's, it was just so interesting that we just had to do it. Right. I mean, even though, um, you know, these bands are kind of minor in this great grand scheme of things in some ways, or maybe we'll argue they're not, you know, and they shouldn't be, but we'll see. Um, so first setting the zeitgeist, right? So one of the things that I thought about with this is these bands are both female fronted bands. And this is a time when that was becoming more and more common. I mean, you think about the first female fronted bands where it's like a female singer or maybe two singers or something. And, uh, and you know, the rest of the band is male. Uh, that didn't really happen much before the seventies. Other, you know, there were girl groups and there were things like, like Janis Joplin and like things Supreme. like that is probably an exception. Yeah, Janis Joplin, I guess, actually, that's a good point. I didn't even mention, didn't even think about that. That's the big first one, yeah. right? That's a huge one. Um, and Jefferson airplane, uh, you know, which Grace Slick would right. be another, but they they weren't that common, right? Right. But that was, those were the first, yeah. right? I would say those are the groundbreakers like Grace Slick and Janis Joplin with, uh, um, you know, Jefferson Airplane and Big Brother and the Holding Company, respectively, right? So yeah. those would be the first ones. And then you would have in the 70s, you had Hark was a big one. And then Fleetwood Mac, you know, Mach 3 or whatever their version was when Lindsey Buckingham and Stevie Nicks joined the band. You had Christine McVie in there. But once they joined the band, it was even more of a female-centric thing, even though they did have songs that were not female centric that Lindsay sang. Yeah, but it became um, really she became the front of the band because her songs were the biggest hits really with a couple of exceptions, right? Right. And 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 you and you have these women becoming the face of the band. For sure. Right. Yeah. So you have like like Dreambone Annie, the cover is just the Wilson sisters. As it right? should be. And they're on the cover of every album. And the band is not featured prominently on any album cover really. Even in the later ones, they're kind of in the background. Right. And I would argue with Fleetwood Mac, obviously they have those covers with Mick Fleetwood kind of being the face with Stevie Nicks, yep. those themed, but still Stevie Nicks was so, you know, such an icon at the time. I mean, women would dress up like her for sure. to go see them yep. before they did that for Madonna. Right. Yep. So, and then you had, um, you know, when the new wave came around, you had the pretenders, although I would argue the pretenders are a different case than these two bands because Chrissy Hind was the leader of that band. You couldn't really say that Dale Bozzi or, or Terry Nunn, at least when they started, were the leader. There was like a male, at least one or more male figures who were kind of the main songwriters um, and the leaders of the band. And you had Pat Benatar, even though Pat Benatar was kind of a solo artist, she had a consistent band throughout and her husband, Neil Giraldo, wrote a lot of the music. So yeah. it was a similar thing. Um, and then of course, you know, a band you've mentioned before that you dug, uh, you know, kind of a one or two hit wonder, right? Yep. Quarter Flash, That's right. another one, right? And their album covers don't really feature their lead singer. I don't even know who their lead singer is. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think it's, um, her name is like uh, Rindy or something, Ross. I, free, I forget. Right. Yeah. But she would, the Quarter Flash was actually signed, if I recall correctly, by uh, a competing record label to Pat Benatar's label. Because Pat Benatar was sort of taken off and they're like, oh, we need more of these types of bands that have feature female singers and stuff like that. And, and the Quarter Flash singer was the face of the band, you know, she, attractive woman, played an instrument. She right. played a saxophone and, 
you know, all that kind of stuff. So yeah, absolutely. That was one of those bands at the time. And the biggest influence at all of all on these bands in that respect has got to be Blondie. Oh, for sure. I mean, and of course, Debbie Harry, also a Playboy bunny like Dale Bozio was, you know, so you have this really attractive female lead who becomes the face of the band so much, like in the case of Blondie, that people actually call her Blondie. Yeah. Even though that's the name of the band. Right. And she's the prominent face on the album covers. I think with Blondie, they did feature the band more than you do with Missing Persons and, and Berlin on the covers. But she's right at the center and kind of more prominently featured. And even on the album, one of the later albums, Auto American, she's the only thing on the cover. You know, the band members are kind of in the background. Uh, another band at the time, similar, the Motels yep. with Martha Davis. Right. She's the main like there's the artwork on the cover is, you know, renderings of her. So it's a very similar thing that was kind of going on at this time. So that's one big thing that's kind of really interested me was this whole idea of the female face of the band. Um, and then there's, of course, the musical influences, which are kind of a little different um, for the two bands, right? Berlin is a complete synth band. You know, the guitar is there, um, and but it's kind of in the background. Yeah, they had like three people and, playing keyboards. You know what I mean? It's yeah, crazy. Right. And and you you know that that's coming from Kraftwerk. Um, Ultravox was a big one uh, at the time. You know some of the new neuromanic stuff like Spandau Ballet in their early form. Yeah. Uh, Gary Newman, uh, orchestral maneuvers in the dark. Um, you know these were the these were the hot bands out of England, and that's what Berlin. That's what John Crawford, the leader of Berlin, was really into. Um, but with missing persons, it's much more guitar oriented, right? And it's it's kind of heavier in a way and more rock oriented. So I was thinking, like definitely Devo. Like oh, yeah. Some of the songs that um, Missing Persons has kind of remind me of the the Devo songs that favored guitar more, like um, you know, Uncontrollable Urge, yep. right? They have some harder rocking songs that are like that. Um, obviously, the Cars, you know, uh, Rico Kasich's kind of new wave singing. I think I think the Cars were probably influenced on both an influence on both of these bands. But again, they're more guitar driven than Berlin. They're more like uh, missing persons. Um, and um, you had Oingo Boingo, which I think were influenced on both bands in a way because uh, Berlin often opened up for them, and um, Oingo Boingo were you know kind of a they helped them a lot in their early days. And then, of course, they're another band that's uh, very guitar-oriented with that very kind of quirky new wave singing of, of Danny Elfman. Um, and finally, for I would argue for um, just the missing persons music-wise, uh, you can't overstate the influence of the police on, on these kind of really good musicians, right? Yeah. You had, like, the police were a, you know, new wave band, but they were, they were, they had the technical chops of, like, a prog rock band. Um, yeah, they're all and, great. Just, I, yeah, they're all incredible musicians, yeah. and you can hear Andy Summers' influence on the guitar and Missing Persons a lot. Yeah. And of course, Terry Bozio, being a, a an incredible virtuoso drummer himself, had to be impressed by what Stuart Copeland was doing. I know that Neil Peart was oh, yeah. right. You listen to early '80s Rush. Stuart Copeland. That's the influence. Stuart Copeland's one of the best drummers in rock history, hands down. There's no right. question. Yeah, and he's he's in a way he had it. He was as technical as those guys. But he had his own combination of influences from reggae and stuff. And he was doing Scott, something, I yeah, think, too. that was so right and Scott. And I think he was doing something so innovative that those guys couldn't help but be influenced by it. I mean, you just think of all the prog rockers that kind of became more streamlined and 
and trying to make popular music at the time in the early 80s, I think they were all influenced by the police. Everybody was. And I would also... Because they were... Yeah, I mean, and one of those bands... Yeah. Right, go ahead. I was going to say, there was... I mean, to be... That's a different episode, but they were one of the greatest bands in rock history. So, I mean... I agree. Everybody was I influenced agree. I think, by them at that time, right? I think it's trendy to, to not like them in some ways, retrospectively, but... I think they're, yeah, I think they're like the Beatles of New Wave in some ways because they just influence so many people. Um, and for a brief run, they, you know, they just had an incredible run. So we'll have to do them in a future episode. We'll have to choose which album we think we want to do. But um, another one I'd argue that's kind of influenced, that was also a prog band that was influenced by the New Wave, especially Talking Heads and, you know, the stuff that David Bowie was doing with Brian Eno. Yeah. Um, and even probably the police a bit as well was King Crimson. You know, they had reformed and the stuff on discipline, it sounds like new wave. And I know that Terry Bozio, I mean, he trafficked in those circles. He, you know, after playing with Frank Zappa, he also played with the uh, prog band UK, one of my favorite albums, Danger Money, which is their second album. Um, you know, and even that was more streamlined progressive rock that was much more rooted in sort of the new sounds that were happening. And so King Crimson Discipline Era, I, I, I have to think that this was a huge influence on them as well to want to get into this kind of music because they were playing with Frank Zappa and it was very different than what they were doing, right? Yep. So they wanted to jump on that. And then, of course, the big thing here too, new technologies, right? I mean, there's all these new synthesizers and drum machines that were coming out at this time and both bands were hugely influenced by this, right? There's a, a drum machine called the TR-808 that Berlin used. Uh, to record Pleasure Victim, and um, even though they had a drummer too. <laughs> yeah, kind <laughs> but, of. I mean, it, yeah. go, go ahead, finish what you're going to say. Oh. Yeah, I'm just going to say that, yeah, th these synthesizers, the, the you know, the TR-808 uh, and Roland's uh, Jupiter-8, also used on Pleasure Victim, uh, was massively influence, influential. And of course, electronic drums, uh, Terry Bozio played... Uh, he actually invented an electronic drum kit. You don't hear it as much on uh, Spring Session M as you do on the last two albums, um, which are complete electronic drums. Um, and Neil Peart at the time was also playing electric drums for the first time. So, uh, you know, a lot of these bands were like, these are new toys we can play with. Yeah. Right. This is cool. We can play with these new toys. And both of these bands were very influenced by what was coming out at the time. It was kind of a boom and, uh, you know, innovation as far as electronic instruments well and as far as the drum machine goes i mean uh, terry bozio was didn't really need much help on the drums obviously he's a really good drummer but um yeah. the uh, drummer in berlin i forget his name but he you know at the us festival and we'll talk about that in a little bit and um, they're definitely using a drum machine live um he's playing along with the drum machine it's really obvious oh wow i didn't yeah, even notice uh, yeah that. yeah it's really yeah, obvious yeah. <laughs> um and and so you know not you know berlin not the greatest musicians in the world and we'll talk about that but Again, the drum machine and the electronic drum sounds, there's a huge part of the sound, as you were saying. Right. So, um, and I also should go back, I forgot about Bozio's vocals, right? So Terry Nunn's vocals, I mean, probably influenced by Blondie, but probably just, you know, whatever came out of her, right? I mean, she's just a good singer. Yeah. Um, Bozio, uh, Dale Bozio, on the other hand, um, <laughs> you know, uh, more limited, let's say, and we'll get more into that. But I mean, as far as her vocals, they're very quirky and new wave. And um, there was a singer around this time who had some hits in England, Lena Lovett. She has this, her probably most famous song is New Toy. Um, you know, when we talk about, uh, uh, 
I mean, we, there's one one zeitgeist thing we need to talk about, which is a particular radio station in Los Angeles called Caro Q. Um, this was played on Caro Q, uh, the new toy song, and it's very much squeaky. You know, she has that same squeaky yeah. kind of voice um, with those little hiccups and quirks. And then, of course, Rick Ocasek, again, very overtly new wave, and Danny Elfman, I would argue, as well. And I would argue maybe even, you know, since it was this is L.A., and what band was the biggest thing in L.A. at the time? Not the kind of music they were following, but Van Halen. And you listen to Van Halen 1. This is a bit of a stretch, I know. But you listen to Van Halen 1, and you really got me. There's this whole part where David Lee Roth is kind of doing these high-pitched squeals yeah. and squeaks doesn't sound that different from Dale Bozio. I so I almost it. wonder if that could have been. Yeah. I mean, it's a bit of a stretch, but you know, it was around at the time. And of course we have to talk about, um, we'll talk about this during our personal history. I'm sure we'll both talk about this. You know, at the time there was an LA radio station, Caro Q that was playing this music when no one else K-Rock. was right. Even in the country, even around the country. I mean, K rock was the first band to play U two here, I believe. Yeah. Um, in the United States. I mean, they played a lot of these bands that were coming out of England. You know, and in England, these these kind of bands like Duran Duran weren't just a quirky, uh, you know, uh, obscure thing. They were, you know, top of the charts, but no one was playing them. Like classic rock radio or AOR rock radio, we'd call it then, was not really playing this kind of music, right? Correct. There was nowhere for it to be. So K-Rock was a huge part of the birth of these bands. And you heard at the beginning, Richard Blade, who actually was dating uh, Terry Nunn at the time of the US Festival. He's introducing Berlin at the US Festival. He was a majorly popular DJ in the area. And he actually had his own TV show, MV3, that was kind of like a combination between American Bandstand and MTV. They'd play videos and they'd have dancers and then they would have live bands come on. And it was hugely popular in the LA area in Orange County where I grew up. Did she, so, I mean, did um, she break up with him after she saw what he was wearing at the US Festival? Because... <laughs> Dude, I know. I know. We, me and Barb are laughing about that. We're watching that. And it's like he's got his pink kind of uh, sleeveless kind of sweat sweatshirt and these little runner shorts. Yeah. You know, uh, the, and he's Australian. It's like the classic kind of early 80s Australian dude. Yeah, you know? I know. Yeah. That's pretty funny. Anyway. Maybe that's why she did. Maybe. Maybe she just thought that was so hot. Maybe. You know? Yeah. Uh, but that's kind of the zeitgeist. guys. Did you want to add anything else about the kind of the zeitgeist. No, I, I think you captured it. Um, why don't you we'll yeah. get into the history of that, the band's history and the albums. And why, why don't you take that away and I'll, I'll chime in here. Yeah. So we're going to talk first. Let's talk about Terry, but Terry Nunn. And as you know, we're going to have to say Terry Nunn or, uh, you know, instead of just Terry, because like, as you mentioned, the <laughs> Terry Bozio, you know, it's going to get confusing, but Terry Nunn and Dale Bozio. So, um, you know, Dale Bozio is a few years older than Terry Nunn. Um, uh, Dale came from Massachusetts, and you could really hear it in that uh, clip uh, of banter from the US Festival. You can really hear that accent. Um, and uh, T- Terry Nunn was from the Los Angeles area, so she grew up in LA. Um, both were kind of these, you know, wild teenagers, you know, that would go out late at night. And Terry, Terry Nunn was saying in an interview, you know, she would just go party with her friends and skip school and do all this stuff. And, um, Dale, same thing. And uh, Dale Bozio, even when she was uh, a teenager, actually got a job as a Playboy bunny in the Playboy Club. And that's kind of what she did. And she was still in, uh, you know, of high school age at the time. So and I think Terry we very strict about that. No, I was just going to say, I think Terry Nunn comes from a pretty um, chaotic family situation. I think her father was... 
That's right. Her father was an alcoholic. Uh, he and... had been a child actor and yeah. he became an alcoholic yeah. and he eventually uh, basically either killed himself. I think he killed himself yeah. uh, or drank himself to death at least. And yeah, she had a really chaotic childhood. That's a good point. Um, and um, I imagine Dale did too. I mean, I didn't really find out much detail about her parents. She seemed to have a good relationship with her parents, but um, yeah, she basically, um, you know, still going out at night and whatever. And, and early on and like, I think when she was a teenager, also she was a fan of Frank Zappa and she kind of broke into his dressing room or through a window. And that's how they met at first. So they didn't meet first in Los Angeles. Uh, they met first in, in, in Massachusetts when he was touring there. Um, but around this same time, uh, Terry Nunn actually uh, was trying to become a, an actress and so she was auditioning, and that's what you heard at the beginning was that Star Wars audition. She actually auditioned for the part of Princess Leia. Who was worse than that? that was her clip, with Harrison by Ford. the way, her Harrison Ford—they're both horrible. I know, I know. Yeah. It's it's weird. Yeah, she's pretty bad in it. You could see why she was not. I cast. mean, yeah. If you if you watch any of those uh, Star Wars editions, I mean, William Cat, the Great American Hero, was one because both Brian De Palma. This is a little a bit of a tangent, but both Brian De Palma and uh, George Lucas kind of shared auditions while he was auditioning people for Carrie. So you mentioned John Travolta as fucking Han Solo. How good would that be? <laughs> yo yo hey, yo yo. Uh, Darth Vader. Hey. Castle Rock. You know, um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and and like fucking but even carrie fisher you know bad they were all pretty bad but but she was so that was that right she had she had uh tried to get into um acting but at the same time in order to make money she of course posed for penthouse and lied about her age she was 15 Yikes. or 16 i think right so uh it's pretty crazy um and then of course the parallel is that Dale Bozio, and I was a little confused by this because I think the pictures were taken in like the late 70s, but it was released in like 1985 after Missing Persons was actually kind of known. I think they might I think they might have put the photos in Hustler twice because Larry Flint probably saw an opportunity to take advantage of Dale Bozio's minor fame Ugh. or notoriety, right? To release them later. Well, I, just about Hustler, I just want to say a few things. First of all, <laughs> posing in Hustler is just so sad and desperate. Just for mm -hmm. any poor young woman who's doing that. I mean, Hustlers is so nasty and it's just like methy biker chicks. And, you know, Dale was probably paid like 100 pesos and a bus transfer to do those photos. Right. You know what I mean? It's like just really not a good place that she was in, I'm sure, when she decided to do that. Yeah, it, it's 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 kind of interesting because as we talk about their futures, it's it's kind of almost hitting like there's something more gritty and edgy there um as opposed to something more classy you know with penthouse I guess. <laughs> relatively speaking so it kind yeah. of parallels their 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 trajectories yeah. as we'll get into so so yeah so that's kind of you know uh that's kind of interesting that parallel um and it kind of i almost wonder you know when i talked about my to my wife about this and talked about oh the parallel with debbie harry being a playboy bunny and she said well that may be just what young attractive women had to do Maybe. to make it yeah. you know back then they didn't it was hard to to get noticed and and you know make it back then they both um and actually they both wanted to be actresses right so dale bozio when she was a um working at the playboy club she won the playboy club bunny of the year for the entire united states um, and Hugh Hefner had her flown into LA 
uh, to become a hostess at a Valentine's Day party. Like it was just kind of like, oh, well, you're the Playboy Club playmate. I want you to come. And I guess Dale Bozzi had a weird, she got there and he was kind of silent and wouldn't talk to her. And he just kind of begged, you know, kind of gestured for her to come upstairs with him. Very creepy. I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, you want to be the hostess for my Valentine party? Well, get ready to start the audition, you know, in my, in my private room. So uh, she just left. Yeah. Good for her. And it's, yeah, it's, and it's kind of crazy too, because the the way she tells the story is she just kind of left and somehow wound up at Frank Zappa's studio. I don't know if she, like, it wasn't clear as to whether she just ended up there. I mean, I think she wants to make the story more kind of serendipitous and dramatic, or she planned to do that, but she did go there and he remembered her. And uh, hey, you're, he the, basically you're the girl offered... who crawled through my window in Massachusetts. <laughs> exactly. Um, and they, it's, it was more like a fatherly kind of thing. I don't know if there was anything going on there. I mean, Frank was so into his music. I, I don't know about his reputation uh, with, we've I mean, seen documentaries on him and stuff, but I, I don't know if he did anything with her. He might've, but, but basically she met Terry then too. He was, he was already playing with Terry and, and, and Warren were already playing with Frank Zappa at that time. Um, and uh, Terry was just this drummer extraordinaire. Um, he tells a story of when he auditioned for Frank Zappa, um, there were a bunch of drummers there. And after he played, they all left because, you know, Frank was like, you're really good. I want to hear you more, but I'm going to listen to these other guys. And the other guys all left yeah. <laughs> because they're like, what's the point? This guy's so good. Um, and then Warren was this fan who followed him all around um, uh, wherever he went in the New York area. And he taught himself how to play all of Frank's solos, which is Frank Zappa is no slouch when it no, comes to guitar. He's a, he's a great so guitarist. he's yeah. an amazing guitarist. Yeah. So, I mean, that's impressive. So he, he basically earned himself a job by just teaching himself how to play all of Frank's songs. Um, so they were in the band um, at this time. Um, and of course, Dale met Terry and they fell in love and, and got married. Um, but she also was offered a job, you know, just being on Frank's record. She's on Joe's garage, um, which I'll talk about a little bit later in my history. Um, she plays the character of Mary and she's really just kind of squeaking and squawking and not really singing. Um, and Terry also did parts on his, on his, uh, he not only played drums, but he played characters on Frank Zappa's various kooky, you know, exper- experimental, uh, uh, concept albums. Um, so yeah. And, and during, but during this time, you know, she had always planned to become an actress, but she kind of just got, you know, she wanted to use the Playboy opportunity to get to LA to be a star, and she never really did. But Terry did. Terry, so Terry, Terry actually, did, Terry Nunn. Sorry, okay. I'm going to keep doing. That's going to be a thing. Yeah. It's like me trying to spell Warren Cucciarello's last name. Yeah. I think I spell it like four or five different ways on the show notes, and none of them are right. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even but, try um, to spell it or say it. It's Warren. Yeah, C. exactly. Yeah. So, so yeah, she so. Uh, Terry Nunn had more success. You know, she had some guests. You can find clips of her on like the show James of 15 and uh, Lou Grant, you know, so she had these bit parts on various shows. So she was actually more successful. And actually, in one of the interviews, she talks about how she was offered the part that Charlene Tilton would later play in the show Dallas but she decided to do music, yeah. right? So that could have, she could have been a relatively well-known actress if she had stuck with it, maybe. And she was on um, like so, Police Story and she was oh, also yeah. on Vegas with Dan Tana oh, wow. and uh, Phyllis Davis. 
Sweet Sugar that I'm sure we'll talk about it. Some other oh yeah, toy, Sweet Sugar will have to be one of our films. Yeah. Uh, that uh, we talk about if you know Phyllis Davis was uh, was the uh, secretary there on, on Vegas had her own uh, distinguished acting career in sixties uh, sexploitation movies and such. Um, here's a weird thing: she was also in a I saw on IMDb she was in something called Katie Portrait of, of a Centerfold. Maybe that's also weird. Whoa, isn't that weird? Uh, oh man, yeah. See, it just gets weird. Yeah, like with these weird. Weird parallels and stuff. Um, and you forgot her most important starring role, though, in the great, great, great movie. It's not actually great. Thank God it's Friday. Kind of like oh, the yeah. disco version of the movie Car Wash with uh, Jeff Goldblum and and, and uh, Donna Summer was in it. And uh, many other people you've never heard from again. <laughs> but uh, it's on Amazon Prime currently uh, as of this recording. So you can, you can check it out and, and see what you're missing there, but it's, it's not a great movie, but Terry's, you know, has a prominent role in it. And that's crazy because of course, Donna Summer links to who Giorgio Moroder, who has a, a pivotal role in this story as well. So it's kind of crazy, all these linkages and parallels. I just, you know, um, totally nerd out over this kind of stuff. So, so she, she decided to do music, right. And she hooked up with Berlin after um, their former vocalist, Tony Childs, who's actually a pretty famous vocalist in her own right, uh, ended up leaving the band. So, so she, um, you know, and she relocated to Orange County, Fullerton, my home ground. Um, and that's where she, you know, she hooked up with John Crawford, the, the leader of um, Berlin. And they started playing around and they got, ended up getting a record deal but they had this British manager who Terry Nunn did not like. Um, and she felt that the rest of the band was complaining about him as well. And so one day she kind of gave him an ultimatum like, hey, you know, we don't like what you're doing. We're going to fire. You know, we we don't we think you need to change what you're doing or we're going to get different management. And none of the other band members stood up for her and she just ended up leaving. And it turns out the reason for that is a week before she didn't know it, they'd gotten signed right to to a very small record label and they added they had a album deal so she had left how and could they hired she not this know other that woman. like a week later isn't that weird yeah that's what she that's how she tells it doesn't it. make sense you know it's real. it's you know some of these stories like with dale kind of just running into frank zappa you know you have to take it with a grain of salt right. um but but basically uh they hired this other woman virginia macalino and they released an album called information that didn't do anything and later, Terry Nunn started going back to more acting, but then she came back, uh, you know, because I, you know, Berlin had gotten rid of Virginia or Virginia left. Um, and that's when they, you know, would record Pleasure Victim when when they got back together. Um, so a little more on the forming of, of uh, missing persons as well. So missing persons, you know, they were all members of Frank Zappa's band, including bassist Patrick O'Hearn and um, uh, keyboardist Chuck Wilde at the time was playing with Frank Zappa as well. And Frank had talked to Warren and Dale and said, why don't you guys form a band? You know, according to, this is according to Dale Bozio. And then they brought in Terry, of course, because, you know, he's a great drummer and he was married to Dale at the time. And um, they... Uh, recorded their first EP, uh, which was just called Missing Persons. And it features some of the songs that would show up on Spring Session M, but it features one that wouldn't, and I think it should have been 
just part of that record, which is Mental Hopscotch. I think it's one of their best songs. And it's actually Frank Zappa's favorite song they did, uh, that he he liked that one the most. Um, and then again, uh, after, you know, Berlin um, uh, recorded Pleasure Victim, they both, both bands started getting airplay on K-Rock um, a lot, right? Words and Mental Hopscotch were played, and uh, uh, Sex was the main song at first played on K-Rock, although they would play the Metro later, and, I, and the Metro would probably become even more uh, famous than Sex. But Sex was, a, was, was quite a radio hit. And, um, Berlin, uh, Berlin actually sold a lot of, a lot of pleasure victim based on just that song. Um, and if you think about it, it's a pretty unique song and we'll talk more about it. I mean, there's really nothing like it. Um, so as far as the hit, you know, the success, right? So spring session M, you know, it's got walking in LA, it's got destination unknown. These were hits on MTV and the radio. Um, and it ended up going gold, um, pleasure victim would end up going platinum, but not until like 1992. So, but it would, it was also, so they were similarly successful at first. And then of course, another parallel we, we found, they both played the US Festival, which we'll probably talk a little bit more about their performances, et cetera, in detail. Uh, when we go into our evaluations. Um, as far as, and again, the album covers, right? Pleasure Victim, I think, is is a great album cover. It's got kind of a Videodrome-like cover with, um, you know, Terry's image on a TV set, and then you have the shadow that may or may not be John Crawford looking at the image, right? But she's the main focus of the album cover. And then Spring Session M just has this portrait of Dale Bozio with, um, you know, her hair all dyed, like, pink and white, like she would dye it, and then a blue stripe across her face. It's sort of iconic, right? Definitely. Um, incidentally... Fun fact, Spring Session M is actually a, what do they call that? Anagram. Um, anagram of missing persons. Well, that's why you have such a kind of weird, dumb album title, but, it, you know, kind of is cooler when you know it's an anagram. Um, and so, you know, they both were doing pretty well. And then they it was time to follow up the first album. Uh, missing Persons followed it up with Rhyme and Reason, uh, which didn't do well at all, right? It had a single called Give. Um, and, you know, we'll talk more about it in the evaluation, what I think of this and their subsequent album, the color in your life of your life. Um, that didn't do that well, but Berlin, uh, released love life. And on the strength of the Giorgio Moroder produced no more words, um, that actually went gold and it, no more words was a huge, a pretty big sizable hit for them. Um, missing person's final album, the color of your life. Uh, they actually changed the cover so that it does feature all four members of the band. And one thing I noticed with these bands is every male member kind of has the same hair. Yeah. Like like <laughs> uh, Missing Persons kind of has this poofy hair. And then Berlin, if you watch the US Festival, it, they all kind of have this. It's a little poofier than like, it's almost like reminds me of like Scott Bayo or something. These weird kind of early 80s hairstyle, maybe like Richard Blade's hair a little bit, but black. Yeah. They all look so much the same. John so Taylor funny. of uh, Duran Duran had a similar look. Yeah, too. John Taylor. Yeah. Right. And, and and then by the time of Missing Persons, it seemed like Missing Persons, their hair just kept getting bigger. And then by the time the color of your life, it's just sky high. You know, they're, 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 it's that kind of 1986 kind of poofy hair that just kept getting bigger. Because in the 80s, the hair just kept getting bigger <laughs> over the years. Um, it's pretty funny. Uh, so The Color of Your Life performs even worse than Rhyme and Reason. 
But Berlin released Count Three and Pray, and that had Take My Breath Away from Top Gun on it. So the album didn't sell as much as Low Life or Pleasure Victim, but the song was a Love Life. global number yeah. one song. I mean, it, and it's still the most popular Berlin song. And we'll, I'm sure we'll talk more about that during the evaluation. So they were on top. But uh, interestingly enough, they both had three albums in their classic period, right? Missing Persons broke up because Dale and Terry got, Terry Bozio got divorced. Um, and then Berlin, uh, they broke up, I think probably because of Take My Breath Away. I don't know that because that was really pretty much Terry's solo. Yeah. Right. The story there is that, um, you know, they didn't write that. That was like a, a song. Yeah, written. it's written by uh, Giorgio Moroder and co-written with Rick Zito, who was famous for what? Producing The Flame and Lap of Luxury, which we talked about on our Cheap Trick episode. Yeah. He was the producer of that. So they co-wrote that. Yeah. Basically, I mean, it was a huge hit, like you said, and people would go to the Berlin shows and they'd want them to play Take Your Breath Away. It's really a Terry song. It's not really the music from the rest of the band. The rest of the band didn't really even know what to do with it. Um, it was the first really big hit that one of them didn't write or a former member didn't write. And it just started, it's like, what are we, why are we doing this? It isn't really our band, you know? I mean, they, they were, I'm sure, like the money from it. But I mean, it was just, it was just a, you know, kind of a division point where the fans are really into hearing Take My Breath Away and it's kind of a ballad and it's not really Berlin. Right. And it doesn't sound anything like them. It doesn't sound stuff. like them. And it's not really even the band right. playing, you know, they had nothing to do with it. And, and so, it was just weird, and they were just kind of drifting apart and creative differences and all that usual shit, right? Yeah, exactly. So after that, what's another parallel that blew me away is that both Dale Bozio and Terry Nunn released solo albums. Uh, Dale, Bozo, Dale Bozio released uh, Riot in English in 1988, and Terry Nunn made Moment of Truth in 1991, both having to do with Prince. So... Uh, Dale Bozio got a record deal with uh, Paisley Park Records. And I'm sure Prince had something to do with her. You, if you listen to the music, it just sounds like something he would have tossed off, you know? Um, so to it's speak. not great. Yeah. But, but um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then Terry Bozio made Moment of Truth, which was produced by this producer, David Z, uh, such a Prince name, uh, at Paisley Park. So they both had to do with Paisley Park. So I thought that was a really weird parallel. Um, and then of course, you know, both bands broke, you know, obviously eventually got back together, but for a while, Ter Terry Nunn was running Berlin. That was just, it was basically her yep. and some other guys. It wasn't any of the original members for quite a few years. And, um, they did reunite eventually. And now I, I think that, uh, um, a couple of the guys are, you know, back, uh, David Diamond and the the pivotal main member John Crawford are back with with Terry Nunn. Yeah. Um, and uh, but with Dale Bozio, uh, you know, they had a couple of full band, like not full. They never had a full uh, uh, reunion, but they did have a partial reunion for some VH1 thing in the early two thousands, uh, where Terry Bozio and Warren Cucciarello came back. Um, and then Terry Bozio left because Dale and Terry Bozio couldn't get along. Um, and uh, Warren was uh, with Dale for a number of years after that. And then in 2011, they ended up breaking up. And so now she goes under the missing person's name. 
um, and still tour, kind of carrying the tour. So each of these faces of the band kind of kept the band alive and going, right? Yeah. Um, and then, um, I've, yeah, I think we should talk a little bit about what happened, you know, kind of some other thing that they have in common is there's there's some infamous things that have happened to them, right? So uh, Dale Bozio, she had this thing happen. I only found this on one website, but basically she had been arrested for some kind of animal cruelty. She's an animal lover. And so when you're an animal lover and you have a small apartment in LA, what do you do? You get 30 cats, I guess. (laughs) So that's what she did. She got like 30 cats. And I guess she couldn't take, she was out on tour. She couldn't take care of them. And someone complained to like animal welfare. And so she got arrested for that. I don't think she had bad intentions, but you know, it's, it's kind of a weird thing with these crazy cat ladies, right? I mean, they love the cats, but then they bought, they get so many cats, it's actually bad for the animals. Yeah. It's kind of a weird hoarding thing. Well, I'm, so I'm glad I think she, somebody rescued all those cats and that they're all yeah, I know. doing well It's now. very weird. Um, <laughs> and then, of course, Terry Nunn's uh, infamous event was just happened last uh, year, a year ago, uh, where she played New Year's Eve at Mar-a-Lago. And, you know... Barf. She later apologized mainly for, I mean, I don't begrudge someone making a, a buck, you know, it's like, you gotta, you gotta go where people want, you know, I'm sure she was offered a ton of money, uh, to do that. Um, especially since no artists want to play, uh, for, <laughs> you know, the Republicans are scraping the bottom of the barrel. Uh, Kanye West, I'm sure trying is to get lined the, up there outside the door to get on stage. Yeah. That's a, that's a huge artist they could get, I guess. But, you know, I just picture, uh, you know, Kimberly Guilfoyle and Don Jr. like uh, kind of dirty dancing to sex, Ugh. and it just turns my stomach. Yeah. But I'm pretty sure that's what happened. But you know, Terry Nunn later apologized and said she was really surprised. Although I don't know how she would be surprised that there was no there were no safety precautions for COVID nineteen. No one was wearing masks, and she said she left immediately after the show and was mortified and all this. But you know that that kind of got her in the news. Yeah. So. Um, you know, that's that's kind of the other thing they had in common. They kind of have a little, uh, you know, bit of infamy there. Yeah. And, you know, in the uh, I think in the 90s, at some point, early 2000s, they did Berlin also did a Bands Reunited thing on, oh, on yeah. VH1 where they all got the original members all got back together. Um, it's really not something to watch. It's stupid. It's reality show is not even it's it was completely right. fake. You could tell that it was about money, and Terry Nunn was probably oh, saying, yeah. "Hey, uh, she probably paid for it because it was really her relaunching Berlin at that point as just her. Um, the rest of yeah. them weren't really part of that. It, it was all awkward and weird, and and just complete fake reality show garbage. Like, you know, you know, it was fake because they had like cameras planted behind the person who was supposed to be surprised by the camera in front of them." You know, like oh, just yeah. kind of just like, yeah, totally. like, like really? Okay. Yeah. It, it was just so obvious. And the, the host is this goofy guy and you know, all this kind of stuff. So anyway, they did that too. Yeah. All right. So let's talk a little bit about our, get into that. We're talking about our personal histories with these bands and, you know, so if you were talking about K rock before, but I think that continues to play a big role. So why don't you, continue on talking about your personal histories with these bands. Yeah. So obviously, you know, when I was, uh, when these bands were out and, and when I was like, what, 12 or 13, um, 
I was mostly into kind of hard rock, you know, like ACDC, Led Zeppelin, Rush. But, uh, you know, K-Rock uh, started to become more prominent. And uh, these, and also it was the beginnings of MTV. So obviously I was exposed to some of this music and I, I'm kind of trendy, you know, let's just face it. I, <laughs> I definitely jumped on the bandwagon with some of these bands. You know? Did you have um, your hair like John Crawford or not? No, but I did try, I did get a kind of a, I wore a kind of a flat top and I, I tried to dress like a punker. So I had these like uh, Converse high tops and jeans and t-shirts. And I tried to look kind of, I don't know, my version, which is a really nerdy version of trying to look cool. Um, I was never cool. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think I, I didn't really totally jump on that in a fashion sense. Cause I kind of was, you know, too embarrassed to do something like that. But, um, I was into the music. Like I, I loved the stray cats, which were a, a weird, another weird phenomenon around this time that was somehow tied into K rock and MTV, even though they were playing rockabilly. Um, I liked Oingo Boingo. I liked Adam and the Ants, uh, early U2. Uh, you know, I loved, I loved all the one hit wonders that were, would later become one hit wonders. I mean, Berlin at the time was seemed like that, like sex was like a novelty song yeah. almost. And, um, I loved all that stuff. Like there, I remember there was this other band. I don't remember their name, but they had this song called teenage anima nurse. <laughs> and it was like teenage anima nurse in bondage. Yeah, and yeah, I yeah, just I thought remember. that was Who great. Was I remember um, that too. Yeah. Yeah. And then of course, don't you want me by the human yeah. league was big. And I loved that. Um, and, um, yeah, I mean, uh, these were, these were the bands, uh, that were big. And of course, missing persons in Berlin were right in that rotation. Right. Um, and I remember liking and hearing sex in the Metro, even though the synthy kind of thing was, was not the aspect I like. I tended to like more guitar bands, even with this genre, like even Duran Duran was more guitar oriented than Berlin. Um, I mean, Berlin is straight up like craft work, you know, it's very synth dominated. Yep. And I remember listening to missing persons. I really remember walking in LA because I, that one actually crossed over to classic kind of AOR KMET and KLOS because it was more rocking. And I remember my dad singing in the car and making fun of Dale Bozio's voice. Yeah. He was like, what can you do now? <laughs> you know, kind of mimicking her voice. Um, he was all amused by all this stuff. Yeah. You know, he's just like, uh, you know, I don't know. Um, but uh, <laughs> He was on to something with her voice. I'll get to that it, later. Yeah, yeah. We'll talk about the her voice is going to be a huge topic, I think, during the evaluations. Uh, point of contention, maybe a little bit. Um and then I remember the US Festival. I remember that being such a big deal. I mean, there was an US Festival in 82, um, but that wasn't the big US Festival. Yeah. Big US Festival was 83. And that's when they had they had three days and they divided. I actually think there was a fourth day that was a country day that everyone forgets about. That was the Monday. But but they had three days, uh, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday that were the main days. And the first day was New Wave Day, right? And that had the clash as the big, the big headline, headline yeah. right? And the second day was Metal Day. Van and had Halen. like Scorpions, Quiet Riot, Motley Crue, and Van Halen yeah. was right, the, the big headliner, right? And I remember kids arguing over which day they'd want to go oh, to, yeah. even though none of us, we were in junior high, none of us were going no. anywhere. Um, but I remember kids arguing like, no, New Wave Day is better. And no, uh, Metal Day is better. And I was kind of really in both camps because I loved all the New Wave stuff that was going on. Uh, but I really loved a, a lot of the metal stuff like Motley Crue and, and, you know, I was, I loved, always liked Van Halen, um, for years, uh, you know, so I was kind of in both camps at Judas Priest too. Um, 
So I just remember kids talking about that um, and kind of having that debate. Right. And then, um, so, so I, you know, I didn't think about these bands for a few years. I started well, getting the, really into classic. I, oh, go ahead. I do, I do want to say something about uh, the Us Festival, which was really kicked off and started and masterminded by Steve Wozniak, right? From That's right. From Apple. And, you know, he was super rich at that point because Apple had just gone public and it was like one of the biggest, you know, companies around, one of the hottest companies. And he was a music fan and he wanted to put it on and it was out in the California desert. And it was a huge deal. At, I, I mean, like you were saying, uh, for, for you and your friends at the time, for me and my friends, like we so wanted to go because it was the coolest thing around. It was like all yeah. these great bands were, you know, out there and, um, you know, going to be a big part of the happening. And I mean, all my favorite bands were basically, I think, going to play or not all of them, but a lot of them are a lot of up and coming cool bands um, were, you know, going to be part of that, including, you know, Motley Crue early on in their career, you mentioned like established bands like the Scorpions, Van Halen, Judas Priest, and, and, and many others. Um, the thing about it was my friends and I were desperately trying to go and, you know, we were young. I was like 12 or 11 or whatever it was. And there was no way I was going. And I was so mad. And my parents were like, yeah, we're not taking you and you're not going. And like my friends and I were all trying to figure out like how we could engineer, get going, figuring out like, their older brothers or cousins or something like that that would take us. And we just couldn't get it together. And I just remember like some of the older cool kids that we knew went and talking about it. And we were just like dying of jealousy. It was terrible. Yeah, it was terrible. And, and this was before you could just go and watch the video, you know, on YouTube or whatever. Like we heard about it and couldn't see it, didn't know anything about it. So it was like this mysterious, great thing that we just weren't able to be part of. So anyway. Yeah, and I forgot to mention Day Three because that's where Berlin and Missing Persons played. It, it's interesting. They really would have fit into Day One, but I think that so much of this music was around. There just wasn't enough room to fit them into Day One. Day Three was kind of a weird hodgepodge of things. There was like Stevie Ray Vaughan and like Joe Walsh, and uh, you know, I I think uh, uh, the big headliner was David Bowie. I think on that day, but there were it was just a weird mix of of stuff. Um, the third day. Um, and, uh, yeah, I just remember that. And, and by the way, Steve Wozniak lost a ton of money on these us festivals. Like he made no money. He sunk millions of his own money into it and they were not profitable. Right. Yep. Even though there were massive crowds, I mean, these big festivals, the logistics, I mean, you think of Woodstock 99 and what a nightmare that is. I mean, there were people passing out of heat with, from heat stroke during the us festival. It was so hot. It was in the desert um, it, for people yeah, who don't know. I mean, it was in the sub, now they have California Coachella, desert. but I think they've gotten this, the kind of logistics down to where they get at people enough water and all this. But back then it was kind of a free for all. I remember clips of them just running fire hoses on the crowd because they were trying to keep them from dying. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like not a, a great uh, thing, but um, yeah, I should mention too uh, that, uh, you know, I have, a, I have a friend, Steve, um, and he's, he's this drummer guy he plays, you know, he, uh, was really, I remember as a kid, he had this massive drum kit and he was really into Neil Peart. He had this brother, Scott. And I remember we'd go over to Steve's house. We had a band together and we'd play and I would sing and badly. Um, and uh, we would jam. And I remember just seeing Scott just kind of come out and get some food and go back into his room. He would never leave his room. And this guy, his room was full of equipment, just like producer consoles and 
you know, four track uh, recorders and, uh, you know, camera equipment. He's also a photographer. He was just like one of these gearhead guys. He, I think now he works for Orange Coast College as like the head of their film AV and virtual reality uh, department. So he was like one of these guys who was just into equipment. Um, and he was, he would never leave his room. He was always there. And I remember hearing that he actually either had kind of helped set up the studio or worked at that Casbah recording. Uh, one of the artists I didn't mention that was part of this whole Fullerton scene as par- part of Berlin was Stacy Q. She was like, um, another kind of pinup looking two singer. Of hearts. Yeah. Two of hearts was her big hit. This was, a. Uh, a few years after Berlin, right in 1986, but during the time of Berlin, she was in uh, she was in this band with this guy John St. James, who ran the studio called SSQ, and they they have a couple albums, and it's very similar to Berlin. It's very much that electro pop sound, craftwork uh, and ultravox, etc. So so he he I guess he knew them, and so he had gone for those sessions of recording two of hearts in 1986. So I guess that's a little connection between my childhood and this, even though it was very tangential, right? Um, so one thing that kind of with missing persons that that happened during my childhood was this thing that I will be talking about in future episodes, because it was a major event in my life. So what happened in, I think it was 85, 86, my friend Joe's father was a landlord. And he had hired me and Joe to go clean up these, these, he had this apartment these people were renting and they were deadbeats, right? And so they had basically skipped out on them and left all their shit. So he was going to take their shit. I guess legally he could do this. He was going to take all their shit and sell it to get what money he could get back. And I remember we went to this apartment and, and so he brought us there to help clean it up. And it was like a fucking pigsty. I mean, these people were animals. It was just like crazy. Um, and we were getting all their stuff and they were kind of like these hip, I think they were kind of like just hippies. Cause, and the w- the reason I know that is just the shit they had, right. They had a, a massive record collection. And so Joe's dad didn't give me any money. He gave me something better. Me and Joe got to split these records, Nice, right? We got to get these records. So my record collection doubled in size. Um, and I got like Beatles records and uh, mostly like late 60s stuff, like uh, in Agata de Vida and, you know, all these kind of classic uh, late 60s records, some Hendrix, some Doors. You know, I'd already had the Doors, uh, but I got more. And um, two of these records are relevant here today. One of them is Joe's Garage. Uh, and Joe, my friend Joe took part one. Which, so Joe's Garage is a three is three records one single album called Joe's Garage Part One and a double album, Parts Two and Three. And I took Parts Two and Three and he took Part One. And later as a joke on my birthday, he kept building up this present he was going to give me and he just wrapped that record and gave it to me (laughs) so that I had all three parts. And Joe's Garage is a late 70s Frank Zappa record, which of course both Terry Bozio and Dale Bozio are on. Um, So it's kind of interesting. And that's why, so they had a lot of stuff like that, but they also had Spring Session M. So that led me to believe that the reason they bought Spring Session M was because it had Terry Bozio and Warren Cutrello on it, right? Because they were they were these kind of hippies. So at that point, I got a copy of Spring Session M. And when I listened to it, I was amazed by how much I liked it. Like, I thought every song was good. And we'll get into that. Because I, I just knew the hits, but I ended up digging the album and I had it for years, you know? And then, you know, I kind of lost a lot of my records due to kind of some sad events that happened with a friend of mine who had the records and he died. And, you know, it's a whole long story. I don't want to get into it. But this record hall was like 
you know, that was one of the records in it. And so that's kind of how I became into missing persons, you know, years after the fact, even though I just kind of was casually enjoying them at the time. Um, and then of course, years later, uh, you know, we get YouTube, we can watch YouTube on our TV, you know, at the time I was drinking a lot and I would come home and just watch random shit on YouTube and just get drunk. And I remember watching a missing person's performance and I fucking was like, wow, this is so good. I can't believe you could watch the whole thing. And I ended up binge watching all these, like, cause you can find the us festival performances for tons of these bands and missing persons is actually like a 40, 50 minute full performance. Some of the bands, you can't find everything, but some of them like Judas Priest and stuff, you can find them. So I remember watching that and kind of got me back into them a little bit. And then, of course, um, you know, with Berlin, uh, one of the things that happened to me, too, is I remember when Stranger Things came out. Right. So Stranger Things came out and it has this soundtrack that's very like 80s synth. Yep. And around the same time, John Carpenter, the filmmaker who always did his own soundtracks was releasing these lost theme albums. And I have them all, you know, and I love this kind of 80 synth. I kind of became like hugely into it again. And that's when I started getting into bands like the human league in Berlin. Um, because I just, for some reason, this, a lot of the synth stuff in the early eighties, I kind of liked it, but then I kind of backlashed against it. Once I got back into classic rock, like the who and Beatles and pink Floyd, you know, for some reason, pink Floyd synths was great but I didn't like any of the 80s stuff and the technology. I just didn't like the technology. But then now, more recently, I've gotten back into it. And so I think that's kind of my history with Berlin. I've kind of liked Pleasure Victim a lot more than I would have because I like that sound. I like the way those synths sound. Um, And I'm just into that. And of course, researching this episode, as we'll talk about later, I discovered a bunch of live shit from Missing Persons, which kind of made me like them even more. Um, But Let's go into your history and then we'll get into that. Yeah. So, you know, we mentioned K-Rock, K-R-O-Q is an L.A. station that played a lot of the new wave uh, type stuff. I mostly at this time in the early 80s did not listen to it and actively goofed on it and hated it because I was more of a metal rock kid. Um, You know, K-M-E-T and K-L-O-S were the two uh, radio stations that we listened to. The fact that I know the number, like... KMET was uh, 94.7 and KLOS was 95.5. I still remember right. that and you do too. And it's really weird that we remember that. But those were stations were such a big part of our childhood. And you'd see like the stickers all around the KLOS stickers and the KMET stickers on cars and stuff like that. Um, I'm going to jump in real quick yeah. with another fun fact that's related that's even crazier. So KMET, they used to have these radio spots where they would emulate a song like, uh, don't lean on my man you know, uh, uh, suffer, you know, they do like suffragette city, yeah. but then, then it would be like KMET, you know, they would throw in that. <laughs> and those sound alike songs were all recorded by John St. James at Casbah recording nice. the same there place for Berlin. So it's like, yeah, it's kind of funny that KMET was involved with that yep. too. Yeah. KMET had, KMET had like, a you know, Jim Ladd was, I think one of the DJs, he was at KLOS for a while too. They go back and forth. KMET is also where Dr. Nemeno was, so we'll get into yeah. that in a future episode. But anyway, big, big, big part of uh, both of our childhoods were these radio stations. K-Rock was not really something I listened to, and a lot of the bands that Slip was talking about, like the New Wave bands, not really my thing at all. The Police were. I really liked The Police. 
I did like, um, and they weren't really that in that genre. The police were played on all the stations. Yeah, they were. Though. They played them on KLOS and uh, yep. they played them on K Rock. Yeah, yeah, and I I loved the police. You know, I thought that they were great. And like, you know, I'll get we'll get into that in the, in the future. But one of the synth bands that I really did like, and I did get a lot of shit from it from my friends, was Duran Duran. I really like Duran Duran. I still like Duran Duran. Me too. Um, I think they're a really good band and their songs are really good. And I liked them back then and like Planet Earth and all those songs came out. I really liked them. I just got endless shit from my friends about like, <laughs> yeah, you know, totally. like what is, hey man, that's so good. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. like, yeah. Who are you, man? Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. you know, all that stuff. But I, I did like it um, and still liked it. Listen to it. Listen to it in college and stuff too, even uh, as well. Um, Missing Persons. I actually bought that album, uh, Spring Session oh, wow. M. And I remember the album cover, that iconic pink with the blue stripe, you know, you were talking yeah. about being everywhere. It was a really popular album, maybe especially in LA. I don't know, but I did buy it. I think it, it was. Yeah. It was, I think it was more of an LA area thing. Cause again, cause of KROQ. Yeah. That's where you're going to hear it. And I just remember seeing in, in record store windows, you know, the posters for it and, you know, all that shit. I bought it. I liked the hits. Didn't really listen to it that much. I don't know what happened to it. And as an aside, I, I'm not really sure about what my record collection strategy was at the time, because like I would buy vinyl and I'd buy cassettes and I don't know. I didn't really have a strategy. I just, I, Same. I, I don't understand Same. like what I was thinking, but I had all of it. I didn't think about things in terms of vinyl and cassettes. I just thought I saw a cassette and I would buy yeah, it probably me too. for some albums. I would buy cassettes for some albums. I would get vinyl. It was kind of random. Me too. Yeah. It, it, it was just weird at this point. Um, I have none of the vinyl. I don't know what happened to it. Um, I really have no idea what happened to most of my vinyl. My, most of my record collection, as it were, music collection was on cassette because I inherited most of it. As I talked about in previous um, episodes, right. um, I had a friend in, junior high whose uh, stepfather was really into keyboards and music and guitars. And he had like a bit of a man cave. Um, oh yeah. So similar to my story with my weird friend's brother, my friend's weird brother. Yeah. Wow. With, uh, with, with <laughs> yeah. Your, uh, friend Steve's brother, the, this yeah. guy had like, um, I mean, he's, a, he was kind of an amateur musician and he's really into computers at that time, which I definitely was. He was kind of a uh, younger, a little bit younger than his, than my friend's mom, not by a lot, but that was also a little strange. He kind of looked like, if I recall correctly, a little bit like Chong from Cheech and Chong with the same kind of beard and, oh, wow. and hair. So, Sounds like the coolest stepdad ever. Yeah. Or maybe not. No, I, he didn't really like him, <laughs> yeah. but it's hard to tell whether that was just because yeah. of his stepdad or not. But, but this dude was kind of interesting. I remember talking to him about Eddie Van Halen and, and Eddie Van Halen. Uh, playing on Beat It at the time. And this guy was, you know, talking about how it was funny because he's talking about Thriller, which was around 83, right? So he's talking about Thriller and he's like, of course, it's a great album because um, Eddie Van Halen's playing on it. You got the guys from Toto all playing on it. It's like, why wouldn't it be great? And so anyway, uh, as an aside, I also had as far as keyboards and knowledge of keyboard and keyboard music. Um, prior to that, in the late 70s, uh, before we, we moved um, to a different part of the, of the valley there, um, I had a friend whose father worked for Oberheim, the keyboard company, in the late 70s, which some would argue is sort of like the, the heyday of that company. And he went on to work for Roland for like 
three decades or something like that. But he worked for Oberheim and he had they had all sorts of keyboards um, laying around the house and they had like pictures of uh, him with famous people who mostly oh, wow. I, I didn't know who they were at the time because I wasn't into keyboard music then. I was into- Yeah, what, it's like Robert Moog yeah, or yeah, something. Yeah, you know? I mean, but it was, it was <laughs> yeah. like, you know, yeah. oh, here's the keyboard player who played on David Bowie albums and here's the, you know, whatever it is. Um, but it was just him with like famous people. Um, I lost contact with, with that dude, but he, you know, I do remember keyboards just being around their house and they're, right. they're probably today worth, you know, tens of thousands oh, yeah. of dollars. Uh, but uh, anyway- um, Berlin, I had heard of, I've had, of course, heard the hits. I like them, I, I, which we'll get into more during the evaluation, but I never saw any of these bands live. But, yeah, we, I was too young to really see them in, in their heyday. Um, I do remember Berlin playing a show in Hollywood, maybe at the Roxy, maybe somewhere else, oh, maybe yeah. at Whiskey. So, you know, one of those places, um, like around 84, I want to say 83, 84. And I wanted to go. Um, I had a, a friend, a girl who was a friend who I wanted her to be my girlfriend. She had no interest whatsoever, but she was really into Berlin. And oh, I wow. wanted to go with her to that. And like my, my parents were like, yeah, you're not going to, you know, yeah. I probably couldn't even gotten into it. It's probably a 21 and over show. I had weird delusions probably. about these things. Or 18. Or they 18, had 18 yeah. and over as well. Yeah. But it's doubt, doubtful that a kid could. Yeah. I mean, I was like that. 12 or 13 yeah. or whatever it was. So, yeah. um, the um, the thing about the US Festival, I just want to go back to a little bit. Um, I I really can't stress enough how like that was. Maybe it was just for kids who were exactly my age, or you know, we were a little too. We were on the fringes of all this stuff because we were a little younger. So like older right. brothers and sisters and cousins and stuff like that were really part of the scene. They were seeing these bands. We were like wannabes. We were like wanted to see these bands. Like I remember wanting, desperately wanting to see Van Halen. You know, I loved Van Halen. This is even before 1984, you know, came out. And yeah, and it was right before they were going to become even huger. Even huger, right? right? It was right on the cusp of 1984. It was right before that. I loved Van Halen. I desperately wanted to go to the S Festival because Van Halen were the headliner. Um, I wanted to see Van Halen in concert. Of course, they played around LA somewhat regularly. And I just could never get it together, you know. Um, and I did wind up seeing Van Halen actually on the 1984 tour. It was uh, one of the first concerts I ever saw. But that was a few years later because that was actually in 1985, I think, when they were right, yeah. right, yeah. Um, so at, at any rate, um, the the US Festival was a big deal. And later on, I think, um, and maybe a different episode, we'll talk about some of the other bands there and how some of them are really just awful, um, dude. What's crazy is the fucking band that blew me away when I wa was watching that footage the most was the fucking Stray Cats. Yeah, well, they're, they're a great so band. good. Yeah, they're a great band. They are so good. Like, I mean, Brian Setzer is such an amazing player. He and is. like, they're just, they were just fantastic. Like, they blew every other band off the stage that, 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 on that new wave day. And of course, you have like the Scorpions are always good. Always. Like, yeah. when they play live, it's like flawless. You know, they're so tight and professional and, you know, yeah. But then you have Van Halen, which you think would be good. No, they were not. They were not good. <laughs> they, they, I think they, they definitely, I've heard live stuff of them where it's amazing. And I've heard live stuff of them where it's bad. And of course I saw them and Dave, David Lee Roth was, was awful. I was, when I saw them. I, I was really that into was much later. Yeah. Yeah. I was yeah. later, but the, 
I was really into Motley Crue at that point. They were new mm -hmm. on the scene. That was their. That was when they were good. Yeah. I mean, as far as at least on record. On record, I mean, the first two albums are it, pretty much, right? Yep. And I wanted to see them there. And looking at the footage years later, I was like, Oh my god, they're awful. They're, <laughs> they're one of the worst. I saw them live on the Girls 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 tour, which we'll talk yeah. about in a future episode. And they were is one of the worst shows I've ever seen. None of them can play right. at all. I mean, kind of Tommy Lee a little bit, but anyway. Um, Berlin was something though in the, in the subsequent years that I listened to a lot. Um, I liked the band, I still do. And it's one of the few bands that he, my wife and I have very different taste in music. And uh, that's one of the few bands that we both like and like to listen to. And so when we're struggling to find something in common to listen to, Berlin seems to um, always be one of the oh, top that's of cool. the list. Yeah. That's, that's pretty interesting yeah. that, that 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 happened. So. Anyway, so let's let's talk about uh, valuations and and how we're gonna go through this. So I'll turn it. Back I think what we're gonna to do you. is we're gonna do each band that we're sort of in favor of, and then the other person can counter. So I'll start with Missing Persons because that's my choice of the two bands. Even though I will say I like both of these bands, and I have kind of pros and cons on each one. Um, more well, pros, I guess, and then you can kind of counter with Missing Persons, and then I'll let you lead off with Berlin uh, because that's sort of your thing. And then I'll sort of discuss, so we can just kind of go back and forth. Right. So, um, okay. Missing persons and what, what I like about them. I think the most, the thing with missing persons is it's kind of more my kind of music overall, even though I like a lot of this synthesizer stuff. Um, I kind of like that missing persons rocks, yeah. you know, they're kind of a rock band. Um, some of their stuff. Some of their stuff. Yeah. Some of their stuff's more poppy. Like they have songs like windows and destination unknown that are pretty much straight pop songs. They don't really rock, although, you know, they still have prominent guitar, kind of that more of that Andy Summers kind of Alex Lifeson circa grace under pressure, you know, guitar effects solos, right. you know, that, you know, there's some shredding live, but you know, on the record, it's more for kind of atmosphere. Um, but uh, I, you know, obviously Musicianship wise, there's really no competition here. That doesn't, you know, I don't know how important that is. Uh, but, you know, as far as other than the vocals, I would argue that musicianship wise, you know, obviously it goes to missing persons. Um, and one of the things that really blew my mind was when I had found some footage on YouTube of them live uh, at a couple of shows. One was at the Warfield in San Francisco and an even better one was in 1981. This is one of the first times they ever played live together at this club called my father's house in long Island. And I just want to play a little bit of a song called bad streets, which is a, a deep cut on the album. Oh, 
Okay, the reason I played that clip was I wanted to have a clip of Dale singing live because I think she actually sounds pretty good, like relatively speaking. You know, she uh, she sounds like the record. She's She's got kind of an edge to her voice that I like, and I think it goes with the music. Like, it's very quirky. I know there's a lot of those hiccups and squeaks <laughs> and stuff. Um, totally unique in a way, uh, even though there's some influences. It's really unique. And I wanted, uh, there's there's parts of that song that are much more impressive musically. There's a guitar solo that's amazing. There's some drum licks that Terry Bozio does that are fucking insane. You know, he's so solid and propulsive and they're so tight. But I just wanted to get a, a, cl- a longer clip of her singing just to show that she could actually sing live. Um, at least as good as she does, you know, and that's again, a point of contention there, right? So I wanted to, uh, that's why I wanted to get that clip. But that, that thing, we'll link to that in the show notes. That performance and the other one are incredible. I mean, the playing on there is is better than anything they could they do on the record. I would argue that these these uh, live clips are kind of, it's kind of unfortunate because I think what happened to the band was they got more and more poppy and they veered away from that rocking side. And I think if they would have stuck to that, at least we would have three good albums instead of one. Yeah. Because I think Spring Session M, I like it all the way through. I like every song, uh, except maybe Rock and Roll Suspension is one of these more new wave quirky ones that doesn't quite work. There's another one called US Drag that's like, it's barely a song. It's kind of a weird, it it could be instrumental and what Dale does with it doesn't really work. But the music is insane. It's in this insane time signature. It's a prog rock song, basically. Yeah, it's it's a prog rock song completely. And I, I wish they would have gone more in that direction. And I think if they would have stuck to this kind of harder edge sound or maybe captured some of the intensity of what they do live on the record better, because even Spring Session M, which is by far the best thing they ever did and the only thing I really like by them, uh, doesn't really capture the quite as ferocious, how ferocious they could be live. I mean, these shows are awesome. And um, that really made me uh, kind of appreciate them even more. But I will say, yeah, I like almost all of Spring Session M. I think every song could have been played on the radio, except for maybe, you know, like I said, the weirder ones. But like Windows is catchy. Uh, uh, what is it? The Noticeable Ones is catchy. Uh, you know, most of the songs are somewhat memorable and catchy to me. Um, and uh, so, but, you know, there's the hits too. And I think probably the one hit that really stands out to me is Destination Unknown. And we should play some of that. Yeah. So, I mean, everybody knows that song that was on MTV and the video is really hilarious because it's just so of its time. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's one problem with the band, too, is I can't imagine this sound at any other time. It's not timeless. <laughs> There's nothing timeless about about uh, maybe you would argue either of these bands, but I would say even because Berlin has maybe more variety. But Missing Persons is so 1982, yeah, 1983. Definitely. Um, and yeah, but I mean, again, they are rocking. Uh, also, I would argue that Dale's influence is, it's, it's, 
it's whether she really influenced these people or not, I'm not sure. With one of them, I'm positive. But um, you know, obviously there's Lady Gaga, you know. She uh that Dale, one of the interesting things about Dale Bozio is like, you know, you think she's just like this beautiful front woman and she's just an image, but she actually, A, she wrote, co-wrote a lot of the songs, probably the lyrics, I'm guessing. I don't think she's very musically inclined. I would agree. But she wrote a lot of the lyrics. Maybe she wrote some of the vocal melody. It's not clear, right? But, um, and then she had this whole fashion thing she did, right? So where she would make her own weird outfits. Like in the Us Festival, it's funny. She looks kind of uncomfortable because she's just wearing these plastic boob things. Yeah. Right? So, so I, I don't know look. what they're made out of. They're made out of some like maybe maybe part of a lamp or something. And then she's got this weird visor on probably to protect her from the hot sun. And she's kind of moving around awkwardly and she's so lean. Like at that point, she's so skinny. You could see her abs and, you know, she's like completely uh, like a very, very skinny pinup, but she looks so vulnerable. Like on stage, she looks totally uncomfortable in these, these outfits she created, but she, she would just like take old components, electronic components and like, you know, make a, make a skirt out of them. And then she would take bubble wrap and make jackets out of it. I mean, it was just really creative and it was totally what Lady Gaga would do later. You know, and and she even kind of resembles her a little bit. I think it's that Italian face. They're both Italian. Um, but of course, vocally, Gwen Stefani, I mean, come on. You know, it's like almost the same sound. Yeah, and it's um, equally and, great and again, from Gwen Stefani. Uh, yeah, if you don't like it. I don't I don't mind Gwen Stefani, especially when they're doing like they do this bad brains cover. I love this band, the Bad Brains, like an early DC uh punk band. Uh, and they do, they were, they were like fusion jazz inst- you know, we could do an episode on them sometime. Maybe they were like these fusion musicians who played punk. They were like the best musicians and they played this song called sailing on and no doubt did a cover of it. And I thought that was pretty good. She kind of does handles the vocals pretty well, but yeah, if you don't like uh missing person singing, you're not going to like no doubt. I don't, I'm not a huge, no doubt fan. It is kind of coincidental that she's another face. She's another person who, like her image was so powerful that it overpowered the band and kind of that's what led to their demise. And they're from Orange County also, uh, even though Missing Persons isn't, obviously Berlin is. Well, um, and yeah. I was going to say, and Gwen Stefani owes Dale royalties for stealing her look and sound. Um, yeah. And maybe that sound right. is just being terrible. I'll get into that in a few minutes. <laughs> but the, I mean, Gwen Stefani definitely is influenced by that. No question about it. And then, as you said, Lady Gaga, for sure, that look. And the, and that, that sort of, you know, um, you know, weird outfit sort of thing. You could argue that that had been around for a long time. There's other people who did that. But uh, to your point, I think Missing Persons and Dale Basio made that a big part of their look and thing, right? I was going to talk about Berlin and sort of my anti part of Berlin, but let's save that. Um, so maybe let's go into what. So so obviously, you know, this is my spiel on missing persons. I like them. I'm I, I as far as my evaluation of them, I'm not going to I'm going to save those for the end. All right. Uh, after we do both bands. But I think we, we should talk about your opinion of missing persons, which is very different. Yeah. So <laughs> to say the least. I mean, look, missing persons, the the hits, you know, what are, uh, you know, words, no more words. No, what are words for? Can't keep track. What are words for walking in LA, destination unknown? Those, I heard those are fine. I clearly, as I just alluded to, I do not like Dale Basio's singing voice and singing style. Grates on my nerves. To me, it's like a valley girl doing karaoke. (laughs) 
that's pretty funny. Because, yeah, there definitely is that Valley Girl element. And again, what about the Frank Zappa parallel there? Yeah. Right? This is around the time that His Moon daughter, Unit yeah. did Valley Girl with him. That was a big novelty hit. And, of course, you mentioned Dr. Grimeno. That was played on there tons of times. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of funny that you'd bring that up. It's kind of – I almost wonder if she was influenced by Dale a little bit there. Maybe. I, I can't take the vocals, you know, at, at all. I do 100% agree with, um, you know, your support of them as far as being musicians. Obviously, Terry Bozio and and Warren are great. The rest of the band are all top flight musicians. I always wondered what Missing Persons would have been like with a real singer. Um, oh, you, yeah. you know what I mean? Just like, almost like a new wave fusion kind of progressive rock band. They could have done something really interesting there. Maybe even a singer like a Terry Nunn quality singer could have done something yeah. interesting. I wonder about that because I do appreciate their uh, musicianship. Um, but also, also, to your point, you know, one of the things that traps them so much in that time are the overtly new wave vocals. I mean, they're so it's almost a caricature of quirkiness. For sure. And it yeah. kind of trapped them in that. I mean, if you listen to the second two Missing Persons albums, she's pretty toned down. Um, she doesn't do those hiccups and stuff. And I actually kind of miss those because it, to me, you know, she's so limited as a singer. Those kind of gave her a distinct character that she wouldn't have had because she obviously is not a singer with chops. That's right. right? She can't like Terry Nunn. We can, we're, we'll go into that obviously is, you know, and she's not, and she's limited. So, you know, when she started to sing give and these other songs from the later albums, it's doesn't it misses that distinctness and it's kind of just like well it's a mediocre voice you know like that's that's to your point i'll agree with that on a certain level i think that's a good point you make the the other thing um you know look everyone knows the hits of of missing persons and you know slip is talking about um uh, spring session m being their most prominent album and it is by far but i want to point uh you know there are other missing person songs that you may have heard and and they're really a lot less uh progressive synth pop rock whatever hard driving all the things that you liked um from the band and from what your live clips were showing i want to talk about a few other songs that you may have heard um this is one uh that is was pretty popular i've heard it many people have but may not realize it was uh, missing persons and it's called i like boys That's like total Valley Girl. That's from the EP. Yeah. That's not even from Spring Session M, but yeah, that was uh that was played on the radio. It was a little bit. Yeah. I think it's been on movie soundtracks and stuff too. And and it's really hard. I mean, it's not a fair comparison to the clip, the live clip you were playing where you have this, you know, really good band rocking out. But no one's gonna listen to that and go, wow, this band is incredible. It it sounds just yeah, like yeah. some synth, you know, band. Um that was the thing where they were kind of trying to do some more poppy stuff or you know, maybe. Yeah, a little, it was quirky and poppy and didn't have that rocking edge. And I think they they kind of got more electronic as time went on. And this is kind of an early example of that because it's a really early song. It's a really early song. And then, you know, I don't know how we missed this on our Doors episode, but they did a cover of the following...
Okay. <laughs> well, you know. You don't think that's good, man? I do not think that's good. <laughs> I do not think that's good. I think it's terrible. Um, you know, look, it, it's it's a weird song to do to, for them to cover, but, you know, that's okay. Um, I, I just, I li- listen to that and just like, it's just like a little grating to me, not just for vocals, even the, the keyboard's not very interesting. Um, it's different. It's a new, it's a different version of that song. Yeah, I will say they make it their own. You know what it reminds me of is um, another really weird cover, which is on Oingo Boingo's first album, Only a Lad. They do a cover of You Really Got Me because everybody covered You Really Got yeah. Me. And it just, it's so from outer space and so ridiculous. Yeah. It's just makes me laugh. You know, it's like, uh, it's not what I would call, you know, like Van Halen, did you really got me? And they made it their own and it's fantastic. You know, one of the best covers of all time. But, you know, obviously Oingo Boingo doesn't, it's just like, you really got me. Yeah, you know, yeah, it's yeah. like super quirky. And that's what the, that this reminds me of. It's just like so quirky. It's over the top. I don't mind it. It's not, you know, great, but it's at least unique. Yeah. You know, at least they didn't just do a cookie cutter version. But yeah, it's weird. Why would they do this? I don't. I mean, know. it sounds like they were trying to <laughs> interpret what Devo would do with this song or something. It just, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. like Satisfaction. But I think Devo Satisfaction is awesome. Yeah. Like it's an amazing song. Yeah. This, yeah, it's not. This doesn't really rock either. It's just so goofy. It's it's kind of goofy. Yeah, it's yeah. like a novelty. Um, yeah. The other song you mentioned it earlier. Uh, one of their early songs is called Mental Hopscotch. I'm gonna play a little bit of that right here. Oh my god! All right, the <laughs> look. I kind of think this sounds like a, a movie, '80s movie soundtrack montage scene or something yeah. like that. I, this one's okay. I, the more I listened to it, the more I was like, "Well, there's some things about it that are kind of interesting, but not really, uh, not really one of my favorite kind of things." And wow, we're really going to disagree here. This is like a top three missing person song for me. I don't. This like is it. like, and it's also Frank Frank Zappa would disagree from the grave. Uh, because this was his favorite. But I think the, one of the things I love about this is, A, I think it's super catchy. Um, and I also love the drumming. Like the way he kind of does those cymbal crashes and with the little kind of ride cymbal ping and the crashes, it's so musical. And it's just, it just, and it's tight. And it it's one of the rocking ones. Like it really does rock. Um, I agree with that. I think it's one of yeah. the better super synthy 80s yeah, you know, new wavy things, but I still I can't bring myself to say I like it. But it's the best of those class of songs, you know, for me at least. Um, yeah, and she goes full Dale Bozio on the vocals too, which might be a problem. For yeah, me. I, yeah. <laughs> I I don't think she holds back on this. No, one. she doesn't. You know, hey, wait, wait, wait. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The I mean, I think this is there's other kind of '80s keyboard dance and soundtrack things that I think really can't stand. Like, I can't think about dancing. Give, I don't like. You mentioned Windows from Spring Session. I don't like those albums. The thing that sucks about those albums, too, is even if Give as a song could be salvaged, it's the production and the way the instrumentation is. So, a lot of these bands, like I said, they were influenced by technology. They just kept getting more technology. So, by the time of Give, it just sounds so electronic 
that it's sapped of any edge. Yeah. Like there's no edge to it. And then she kind of sings in this mid rangey. She's not, she's sapped of her edge too. They're trying to be more commercially appealing. And I mean, one of the things you could argue about, like I would argue Berlin, John Crawford has a sincere love for the music he's trying to emulate, at least in the beginning. Yeah. Maybe toward the middle and later of their career, it was more of a cash grab with no more words and these other other more poppy songs. But that first Berlin album, I think, is completely sincere to the kind of music they were trying to emulate. Whereas I think Missing Person, there was always an element of a cash grab because these are great musicians. They see all these bands getting big like the police and they think, technically, we could play all this just as good as them. And, you know there's bands and and they probably like the music too i think terry bozio was legitimately like excited by the new music and the new technology because he's a very innovative person but at the same time there's an element to missing persons that i think isn't there for berlin at least the beginning that's kind of a cash grab like we're going to take advantage of this trend yep and then that really shows up on the second two albums where they're becoming more and more poppy and they're losing it's more keyboard and electronic influence and less guitar and I think that's what saps the second album, especially which the second album, the third album is just complete shit. Like it's a piece of shit. But Rhyme and Reason has moments where I'm like, this could have been good. And then the songs, ironically, as they're getting more commercial in production, they're just not as catchy. Yeah. Like even Give isn't very catchy, like compared to the early shit, you know? Yeah. I mean, even Windows, which is on Spring Session M, to me sounds like a, a sitcom theme from like 1983 in a lot of ways. It, I, it just may not be my type of thing ultimately. Yeah. Which yeah, I love windows. It's, it's a totally one of their pop songs there, yeah. you know, it's like destination unknown. It's not one of the hard. I mean, like some of the album cuts like bad streets and noticeable one have this dark guitar edge. And these don't, these are like them trying to make a commercial song, even though they didn't release windows as a single, it, you know, it's just, it, it probably was th- something they thought of when they wrote it, you know? Yeah. And her voice is especially Dale Bozio on Windows. I yeah. mean, she's, she's, uh, yeah, she does a lot of flourishes there that, you know, maybe like nails on a chalkboard to some. To me, certainly. And, yeah. and so like, I just had a hard time listening to a lot of it. Just like, I just can't take her, you know? And, and so I think to your point, like if that's how, where one is going to come down, it's really hard to, into the band and so i acknowledge that you know somebody who doesn't feel that way could have a a, a different opinion um all right let's transition over to berlin and maybe i'll kick this off here um berlin i'm i think said before more of a fan um for berlin obviously than the missing persons i don't think berlin's the greatest band in the world or anything but i i do think they have a lot of good songs that i, that I really like i don't really get much beyond their greatest hits albums uh or album or several greatest hits albums for the most part i've listened to all of them and a lot of it's really bad too it, you know i can't defend it but i do like them more um they're not as good of musicians for sure um terry nunn though is actually a really good singer and really she makes the band i think the, yeah. the rest of the band musically are just lucky amateurs to be honest you know that that uh, with with john crawford having some decent songwriting yeah chops. for I mean, sure he did write no more words too yeah, um, yeah, yeah. which is arguably i would argue probably their best song um it depends on you know metro is great too metro they're really memorable songs so he could write some hits he could but, but yeah as, as far as musicianship yeah. Yeah, as musicians, Terry Nunn is far and away the best in the in the group. And she's a far better singer than Dale Bozio. I'm not going to argue that. Yeah. Um, 
just from a technical perspective, she's she's got the chops for sure. I mean, let's talk about the song, a, a couple of, of the songs here. Um, let's talk about sex. Um, we were talking about it before. If you've never heard it, here's kind of what it is. Yeah. I'm a, Dude, I'm a geisha like cracks me up every time I heard it. The, it's fucking amazing. And I fucking, I laugh at him, his singing yeah. as a kid. We used to just me and my sister used to just fucking laugh at that. I'm a man. Yeah. I'm a man. And then hers like, I'm a bitch, yeah. you know, and all this shit. And I love the, 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 the phantom voice after the chorus where it's just like, yeah. And you talk about Georgia Maroder. I mean, that is straight from Don, uh, Donna Summer, I Feel Love. As you'll find out in some future episode, I am a huge fan of Georgia Maroder and Donna Summer, everything Donna Summer ever did. It's probably one of the weirdest things that I like. But um, she does a song called I Feel Love, and it's that same pulsing keyboard. It's like, digga, 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 yeah. digga, 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 right? So it's very, I think he was influenced by that as well as being influenced by Kraftwerk and Ultravox. Um and obviously it's a sexy song too. So Yeah, and they were in a relationship various points throughout John Crawford and oh, Terry. Oh, they were. See, I didn't yeah, know that. Terry I didn't know that. It, I don't know the timelines and it doesn't even make sense. Like I think they they alluded to the fact in that uh you know, bands were united thing I'll talk about in a minute. Um that they were in a relationship, but the timelines are weird. I think they broke up and together and broke up together and ultimately I think what demise of the band is uh, one of the things is they had broken up and were arguing and fighting typical story there. Um, but yeah. So that's another parallel. Yep. That's another parallel between them and missing persons. Wow. Yeah. So um, there's even a story, by the way, as far as the us festival goes, like, I don't know why I'm going to include it, but I will, which is Terry Nunn was saying um, in addition to being nervous and all that for the us festival uh, conveniently, she forgot to wear underwear I guess oh, on wow. stage. And if you've seen the S Festival uh live video from it, you know, she does a lot of dancing around and straddling John Crawford during this song and um kicking around and had I she apparently, according to Terry, at least forgot that she didn't wear underwear and they're filming it and they had to go get the bit the footage and this whole thing. Which when I was watching this and my wife was around watching it, she's like, Oh, what a load of shit. She's like, she didn't believe that for a second. She just thought it was a bunch of nonsense that she forgot to wear underwear. Um, just being, I guess, a, a salacious story or that she likes to tell or whatever it is. Um, the other song that yeah. most people know, of course, is uh, is the Metro. Um, I mean, that's so popular. I, I don't even think I, we need to play it. But the one thing I want to say about it is that uh, that's kind of funny to me is one of the lines about getting on a Paris train and emerging in London rain. Um, look, the, the channel which connects uh, France and uh, England through underneath the English Channel by, by rail didn't actually start construction until 1988. And even though it was planned for years, my guess is John Crawford uh, either had a lot of confidence in the idea of the project in the early 80s or was not paying attention in his geography class at El Dorado High School <laughs> in Placentia. Oh, yeah, Go yeah. Golden Hawks, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, he probably just didn't understand that you actually could not take a train from uh, Paris to, to, to London at that point. But 
Maybe I'm uh, reading a well, little too hey, much. Well, hey, they're a futuristic band, yeah, Maybe, man. maybe it's, they it's, knew. It, you know, they're using this new space technology, so could, with synths and stuff. So could be. They were they were forward-looking. Forward-looking. I mean, the project was conceived of, so maybe he was, you know, reading The Economist or whatever and going, hmm, maybe this seems like something I should write about. I doubt it, though. Um, all right. No more words we've talked about. I think we're both in agreement. It's a, it's a great uh, pop song. Um, I'm going to play a little bit of it now. Yeah. Now, one thing I got to say about this song, that if you have not seen the video for this song, do yourself a favor and mosey on over to YouTube <laughs> because it's a concept video where it takes place in the 1930s. They even have a crawl in front of the video to explain. Oh, yeah. This is the Bonnie and Clyde. The Bonnie and Clyde gangster. Yeah, yeah, I remember this. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And it's like one of the most cringe slash cool things ever because it really is cringeworthy in every possible way. But yeah. there's cool elements of it, I have to say. Like the way she looks, her hair is like kind of has this half white, half black kind of like thing. It looks that cool. was her thing. Yeah, yeah, it looked really cool, actually. Um, and there are elements of the video. I'm like, well, you know, that's really silly. And I wanted to laugh. Like, oh, that's kind of cool, actually. So I don't know, maybe I'm just old and and but the, I like I, I still I love the song, so I kind of like the video. Maybe that's coloring my uh, uh opinion there. Um, another great song of theirs um, is a song called Masquerade. And I want to play a little bit of this from the Us Festival um, live. Yeah, I love that song too. Yeah. I think it's I think it's one of their best songs for sure. Yeah, I, I love that song. Um, I think it's a great song. Live, it sounds pretty good on the on the US Festival. Um, there's other live versions of it that are that are pretty good. Um, the other thing I'll say about them, I, I mentioned it before. We talked about that bands reunited on VH1. It was it was pretty terrible. 
but you know they, they do play some of the songs live uh when they got back together for their fake show they made it seem like people were lining up outside of uh the Roxy or the whiskey or when I forget what oh, it was. Oh, that's really funny. It, it, but it was yeah. clearly just a bunch of people who were, you know, worked on VH1 and, you know, all this stuff. It was so fake and terrible. Um, but anyway, you know, it was one of the things that I watched, I think when it was on VH1 back in the late nineties, early two thousands, where I'm like, Oh, well, Hey, I really like Berlin. I should listen to them more. So it kind of got me back into them at that point uh, too. So anyway, I'll turn it over to you for your thoughts. On- she still sounds good too. Yeah. I mean, Terry Nunn now, I mean, they're what they're doing now. I'll talk a little bit about too, but um, she still sounds pretty good. As far as like what you said on Berlin, I agree with pretty much everything except that I do like missing persons more. I think that, um, you know, uh, I like the, the, the hits for Berlin. Um, I think I have the exact opposite as you, whereas you're kind of like, yeah, I like some of the hits of missing persons, but I don't like the whole thing. I think with Berlin, I feel the same way you do about missing persons. I like the hits. I think some of the, some of the other tracks on there are a little weaker. I will say that it's not really fair to compare pleasure victim directly with spring session M because pleasure victim a is probably one of the most successful demos of all time. I mean, this was a demo and they just ended up releasing the demo. Um, and it sounds pretty good for a demo, but it's still a demo. Right. And it's an EP, right? It's short. There's, it's like uh, with sex, the short and long version on there, it's like 30 minutes long. So it's like a 20 minute plus thing. But um, the title cut has some really cool atmospheric scent. I love Masquerade. Um, sex is a great, you know, it's, it's just a classic, even though it's kind of a novelty song. It's like, um, it still stands out as really unique. And of course the Metro is a classic. Uh, no More Words. Between No More Words and Masquerade, I think are my two favorites. Um, but my big beef too is that I just don't like fucking take my breath away. Um, yeah, I joke that it's something I wish someone would do to me whenever a song is just take my breath away permanently so I don't have to listen to it. But um, yeah, I think, uh, yeah, it's one of these songs where it's, I just don't like big ballads usually. And it's one of those, it's one of the kind of touchstones of that. And, um, even though I guess for what it is, it's good. It's just not my thing. It's, she does a great job on it singing and it's kind of cool. They chose her because they originally were going to go for someone more high profile, but since Marauder had worked with her on no more words, you know, he basically picked her and it, and it changed them. You know, it, it kind of ended the band, but at the same time it made her, you know, some money and and it, it was a big touchstone but, culturally. But you know, so. one thing it did have an influence on so many great future artists, um, including uh, somebody who is really important in the popular culture, right? I'm being very sarcastic, Jessica Stimson, who um, yeah. loves that song and and won't shut up about it. And and instead of playing the Berlin version, sorry, Slip, I'm going to have to do this to you. Force oh, you no. It. Oh, jeez. Yeah, barf. Watching in slow motion as you turn around and see. 
how painful wow. is that? that? I think I hate the Berlin song a lot less. <laughs> I think if you're trying to make Berlin look good, yeah. you've succeeded because yeah. this is the worst thing ever. Yeah. The little baby voice, like my love or whatever oh, that song yeah. is, is just, oh my God, it's like the worst thing ever. So there you go. Just how much it has had an impact on popular culture. And I think to your point, um, I, we were talking before, it's like, you know, they're going to remake Top Gun, I guess, and this song's going to come back around and be played a thousand times an hour, too, right? Yeah, so if you look at the bands now, you know, uh, Dale Bozio is still touring as Missing Persons. I mean, during the pandemic, maybe not. She just came out with this album under the title Missing Persons, which is really a bizarre solo album called Dreaming, and it's a bunch of covers. And it's it's ironic because it is even more spare synthesizer than Berlin. It's just basically a synthesizer and her singing uh, these covers. And it's, uh, you know, it makes Hello, I Love You look like the greatest cover of all time. <laughs> uh, it's just not good. Uh, and it's unfortunate. And it's kind of sad. I mean, she, she'll still tour around with them and she has a backing band, but they're not nearly as good. I mean, they're good musicians. They're just not nearly as good. And her voice is kind of frayed at the ends. I mean, I think, you know, not being a real singer in a way, uh, she probably didn't know how to take care of her voice. Like Terry, Terry Nunn at one point did take some vocal lessons from a really good coach. And so she's preserved her voice. Um, I mean, she looks amazing for her age, for one thing. I mean, I'm sure there's some um, synthetic uh, stuff going on there, but who knows. Yeah. Um, but she, and when she still sings live, it sounds just as good as ever, you know, and they came out with a recent album, Berlin. So she's reunited, like I said, with John Crawford. And they came out with a really recent album. I tried to listen to some of it. Um, and it's just not, it's called Incandescent. And it's just very 2021. You know, it sounds like some Katy Perry thing Ugh. or something. It doesn't even sound like them. So I would argue neither neither one is, you know, carrying the torch completely. Although Berlin seems kind of more gotten their act together. Um, and then... Um, you know, obviously, well, there's the whole legacy thing. So what do I think about the valuation of these bands? Well, uh, obviously, I like Missing Persons more, and I would love it for people to discover these live shows and realize what a great band they were. But I don't really see much beyond that. I think most of the people who like the Missing Persons stuff now are people like me that are kind of nostalgic for it. You know, there's a lot of people going, oh, this band was so unrecognized, blah, 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 blah. I'm one of those people, you know, I think they deserve more credit. But I don't think they're going to get it. Um, as far as Berlin goes, I think they get about what they deserve as far as credit. I think, you know, they have some uh, classic, uh, you know, pop hits from that era and they capture that era. But they also have Take My Breath Away and we're on the precipice of, um, uh, you know, a Top Gun sequel coming out, Maverick, right? So it, Top Gun is one of these things Americans who just uh, military obsessed Americans just can't get enough of. I don't understand why. I've never thought it was a good movie, even when at the time um, you didn't I was like never into it. The volleyball scene with the, you know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> There's like that great clip of Bill Hader, like uh, on Saturday Night Live uh, as Harry what, Harvey Firestein. Yeah. And he's like, he they're, playing they're, it with the they're boys. asking him to be in the movie. Yeah. And he's like, he's like, is this a gay film? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like, wait, <laughs> I'll have, I'll, I'll ride your back anytime. Wait a minute, you know, it's so funny. <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, Play, yeah, playing it's, it it's, with the boys. That's yeah, the name of that song. With the boys. 
But yeah, it's just, I never got the phenomenon, but you know, Top Gun is so popular that, you know, if this movie's popular, I can almost see it becoming like its own universe or franchise. And if that ever happens, then the Berlin valuation is going to skyrocket because that, even though, you know, you have Danger Zone, obviously Kenny Loggins is a huge hit from that soundtrack, but I mean, Take My Breath Away is the ballad and Top Gun is a love story. And, you know, if they continue along those lines, I just see this going up in valuation for people. Um, as far as their legacy goes, I, I would say I'm a little bit long on Berlin because of that, but not because of their necessarily the qualities of their music. I much more in favor of missing persons, but yeah. Um, so that's, I guess that's all I have to say about that. Oh, and the bummer is dude, we did this episode a little too soon because life is so strange the autobiography of Dale Bozio is imminent. Oh. I, it's going to come can't, out can't in a couple of years. That. And I'm like, damn, I wish we, I wish that was out now. And I could have gotten some facts, but we found plenty of information. And, you know, I think we're, we've more than covered these bands, probably more thorough than they even merit. So I don't know. That's my final statement on it. Yeah. I, I'm not certain Dale's going to have that much to say, but we'll see. Uh, yeah, it'll be uh, interesting. Um, I kind of feel similarly. I, I'm kind of neutral on both bands. I think Missing Persons right now is pretty low um, in valuation, yeah. and I don't really see that changing. So that's why I'm kind of neutral there. To your point about Berlin going up because of the Top Gun remake and all that, I think that's probably the case. But I'm wondering, you know, will, will it be Berlin? Are they going to have somebody else do oh, a cover? Yeah. Um, my guess is they're going to have true. like Taylor Swift or some shit like that do a cover of that song. And so it may not be the Berlin um, uh, version of it. You know, it's not their song anyway. So, yeah, it's a, it's not their song. That's a that's a key point I didn't mention. Yeah. Even though it's associated with them, it's really Terry Nunn with Georgia Maroder and company. Yeah. Um, so we'll see. I think Berlin is probably where they're going to be long term, too. I think current valuation, they're probably a little higher. In the in the popular you know valuation that, than missing persons, but I don't think they're going to shoot up or anything, even though they're touring around right. at casinos and state parks near you. Um, yeah, I mean, I like them. I still listen to them on occasion. I listen to songs like Masquerade and No More Words and go, yeah, I still like that song. They're they're not an amazing band or anything like that, but it does make me think a lot about that time, that early '80s, the synth stuff. There's a lot of other bands in that kind of zeitgeist that we're going to get into and talk about. But the ultimately coming back to the original uh, genesis of this show and Pleasure Victim, I, I just remember hearing a lot of these kind of keyboard bands for the first time at that early era yeah. and just going, oh, this is different. It was different. It was very different yeah. than what was already out. It was very different than the kind of the big arena rock or whatever stuff that was really popular at that time. And it did represent a new wave, as it were. And uh, as, as, as cheesy as that is, and and I just thought this was one of the bands that was on the forefront of doing that with many others. So, Yeah, definitely. All right. We will wrap up this episode. We'll have more information in the show notes. You can reach out to us on our email and all that good stuff if you want. Post comments wherever you post those and all that. And we will see you next time for episode 10. Take it easy. Stay safe out there and uh, enjoy those eight tracks. All right, later.